Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I have in the studio with me Alice Wanderer. And Alice is a writer and translator of haiku. Her book of translations, Lips Licked Clean, selected haiku of Sugita Hisajo, the fruit of her PhD thesis, won a Touchstone Award for the best haiku-related book published in 2021. She fell in love with haibun during the lockdowns here in Melbourne. Her own haibun has appeared in a wide range of publications in the USA and the UK. So welcome, Alice. Hello. Hi. Um, so what is haibun? Well, it's a combination of prose and haiku. It's become an increasingly popular um, form for people writing in English. Usually the prose is quite short, especially if only one haiku is included. In fact, it can be as short as a single sentence. The most successful examples use the link-shift principle of Japanese poetry effectively. That means the prose and the haiku zigzag off from one another, taking the piece somewhere unexpected. Of course, surprise is important in poetry altogether, but the gap between the prose and the haiku should involve a change of frame. Some editors expect the same kind of thought to be put into the title too. Um, now, can you read an example from your own work? Okay. When I'm reading a haiku, I always read the haiku twice. This one is called Intruder. I hear the kangaroo before she's aware of me. She's lolloping downhill through the undergrowth and my presence is masked by a stiff salt breeze. Glancing down the path at my perpendicular approach, she pulls short, freezes. Probably she intends to disappear. Or since she's outlined against the sky, perhaps she wants to draw attention to herself. I hesitate. Then see, as in a developing photograph, another and another, ten or more. CT scan. He doesn't see them until he sees them. CT scan. He doesn't see them until he sees them. It's a wonderful moment of revelation in the CT scan, you know, that seeing of the thing that 
you're looking for but you don't actually want to see. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And it, it's nice the way it echoes uh, the sudden presence of the mob of kangaroos where you had only seen the one and then suddenly there's a whole crowd of them. Yeah, that was the association for me. So I guess the way that you make these links is is by an association which finds some similarity but also a really big difference in the frame. So from a, a place where I'm the intruder in a sense and the kangaroos are the... Um, you know, the things that would, could be um, equivalent to them, then sort of transforms so that in the haiku, the plural is the the cancers or whatever it is in the CT scan. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's wonderful working through images to create those sudden revelations um thank you <laughs> yeah because uh you know the they're, they're quite different things seeing a mob of kangaroos and seeing seeing ct scans and yet suddenly they're the they're working together so that's that element of of surprise that comes with the in a sense incongruity of the association yeah thank you that's exactly the sort of thing that um i was intending to to achieve yeah, so so this idea of the haibun, um, it seems like it's new to a lot of people. Is it a new idea? No, not at all. For well over a thousand years, the main form of Japanese poetry has been the 31-syllable waka, which is modernised as tanka. And it's from it that haiku developed too. Waka were written in sequences but often by multiple authors, and it was link and shift rather than linear development that was prized. So larger texts like the famous Tale of Genji or Basho's Travel Diaries um, that are haibung used prose to create story or some other kind of continuity. But haibun is relatively new to non-Japanese writers, Relatively. <laughs> John Ashbury wrote some, bringing the form to, no, uh, to the notice of the American poetry reading public in 1984. Here's one of his. In this case, the haiku finishes the piece, but in fact, one or a number of haiku can be put wherever they best fit. So his is just called haibung. And it contains a French expression, songe cru, which means utopian. Haibun. Wanting to write something, I could think only of my ideas. Though you surely have your separate private being in some place I will never walk through. And then of the dismal space between us filled, though it may be, with interesting objects, standing around like trees waiting to be discovered. It may be that this is the intellectual world, but if so, what poverty, even the discoveries yet to be made, and which shall surprise us, even us. It must be heightened somehow, but not to brutality. That's an invention, 
and not a true instinct, and this must never be invented. Yet I am forced to invent, even if during the process I become a songe crew, inaccurate dreamer, and these inventions are then to be claimed by the first person who happens on them. I'm hoping that homosexuals not yet born get to inquire about it, inspect the whole random collection as though it were a sphere. Isn't the point of pain the possibility it brings of being able to get along without pain? For a while of manipulating our marionette-like limbs in the straight jacket of air. And so... To have written something? Unprofitable shifts of light and dark in the winter sky address this dilemma very directly. In time to come we shall perceive them as the rumpled linen or scenery through which we did walk once for a short time during some sort of vacation. It is a frost-bitten, brittle world. But once you are inside it, you want to stay there, always. The year, not yet abandoned, but a living husk, a lesson. The year, not yet abandoned, but a living husk, a lesson. Thank you for reading that. Look, I, it's unusual in my perception of Haibun in that it seems to be very much about his feelings and his inner states rather than kind of a narrative of visible things. Is, is that an unusual quality for a haibun? Actually, what people are writing has a tremendous range. There's an awful lot of memoir. Uh, there are incidents of ordinary daily life related in a poetical kind of way, but there is reverie of this sort. Um, so it doesn't seem to be outside the realm of what I've been reading, um, although it is a, a very beautiful piece of writing. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, he's got unprofitable shifts of light and dark in the winter sky address this dilemma very directly. It's it's kind of, I mean, there's an image there, but... Um, I mean, he's using a combination of, of visual imagery to uh, represent his feelings, but um, it just seems a lot more internal than the kind of narrative you mm. get in Basho. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, but I guess Basho was a long time ago now. <laughs> and one of the things that I like about this is the way that it moves through a very discursive kind of reverie, I guess, towards more and more sharper and sharper imagery and natural imagery until you get the frost um, frostbitten brittle world, which is also a rumpled linen. And um, I think that's, that's lovely. But the haiku itself is very abstract as well. The year not yet abandoned, but a living husk, a lesson. And yet I can see some connection there, actually, to Basho. I haven't bought um, his Basho's 
um, travel diaries, so I can't quote directly from them. But the beginning of the Narrow Road to the Deep North talks about time being a traveller through the year. And somehow um, I'm vaguely reminded of that by this final haiku. Right, yeah, it's um, it's a it's an interesting piece of work, and it's interesting that it had such a a triggering effect. You know that it was a, a moment in 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 Western poetry where Western poetry itself shifted and mm. said we have another way of being and doing. Yeah, so that's a significant um, outcome from from a half a page high born. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote more than one, but... Right, yeah. Yeah. Was this the first one? Um, I think it was, yes. Right, okay. Wonderful. Uh, Now, um, uh, so John Ashbery was an American person. What about Australian writers? Um, Well, there are two I'd like especially to mention. First, Janice Bostock, who was one of Australia's pioneer haiku poets. Um, So she started writing in the late 1960s, I think, because of of having a a pen friend in America who introduced her to haiku. And then later she published a number of erotically charged haibun all of them are too long to read here, um, uh, but I'm going to read the uh, the beginning of uh, the first Haibun in her 1996 self-illustrated Haibun chapbook called Silver Path of the Moon. The Storm's Descent. The storm's descent thrashing and flashing over our mountain is drawing me to you. Each crack of lightning tugs at me as strongly as the desire tugging at my insides. Each jerk, a counterfeit act of pushing inside me, the rhythm building to the excruciating pain of desire. Desire which seems to be a living thing within me, its giant hand closing fist-like as it crushes the breath from my body. Falling in love, your name becomes a mantra. Falling in love. Your name becomes a mantra. It's um, it's interesting to read something that's passionate, isn't it? Mm. You know, because so often things are fairly observational in a detached sense, and uh, this one is, you know, each jerk at counterfeit act of pushing inside of me. It's something like there's a real sense of struggle and. And, and need and, you know, feelings like that in this one. Yeah, I think it's a very brave piece of work. And it's very well written too. Yeah. How was it uh, accepted? Because, you know, I mean, when I started uh, writing Haibun in um, Myron Lysenko's class, it was a revelation to me. And that was only during the start of COVID three years ago. But uh, did Janice's work uh, create some awareness of Haibun? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> not for me. Um, I didn't um, read it until much later, even though I actually um, corresponded with Janice um, a number of times 
um, long ago when she was still alive. Um, but it was later that I discovered her haibung, because um, I'm relatively new to haibung as well. Um, so sorry, I can't answer that question. Um, and are there many Australian writers uh, writing in haibung? Um, again, we don't have an Australian publication, so it's much more difficult to know. But there was um, in Drifting Sands, which I'm going to be talking about later, a special edition that was um, dedicated to Australian poets called Girt by Sea. Um, and it was edited... Oh, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the person who edited it, but it was edited by... Um, an Australian, I think. Okay. So, um, so who shall we go to next? Well, the other Australian poet I'd like to introduce today is Marietta McGregor, who I think may be Australia's most expert and prolific living hybrid poet. And this piece comes from her featured writer's page in Contemporary Hybun Online, where she also gives her own thoughts about Haibun. The title is There But For Fortune. Each time my father buys a lottery ticket, he's certain he'll win. He always asks his number one sweetheart, me, to put some luck on it. My four-year-old self wants to make him happy. When he's unemployed, he slips into angry introspection, drinking and brooding about his awful desert war. So when he shows me his ticket, I ball my small hand into a fist and dramatically open it, as if I'm showering the paper with diamonds plucked from mid-air. When Dad comes home disappointed yet again from the lottery office, I feel I've let him down. The same thing happens with the horse racers, the Gigi's he calls them. On race days, I give him a kiss for luck as he heads out the door. He never wins, no matter how often he gambles or how hard I wish. Did I only ever imagine you, blue dragonfly? Did I only ever imagine you, blue dragonfly? It's the contrast between the two, uh, the prose piece and the haiku, is quite startling in itself. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I think it's very effective. Mm. It's very effective. And, you know, the natural image of the, of the blue dragonfly is such a, a beautiful image, like a mermaid or something, and yet we are looking at uh, this very normal, uh, ordinary situation of buying lottery tickets and not winning and horse races. And so the, 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 the sense of contrast, I think, is particularly strong. Yeah, yeah. And also the four-year-old self in, this, um, uh, in the prose, I can imagine the four-year-old self longing for a blue dragonfly hair clip which was the sort of thing that maybe was more common then, I'm not sure. Um, and longing and longing as though it was something that was only um, imagined or feared that it was only imagined. And somehow, um, maybe I'm carrying that over <laughs> in a way that um, Marietta wouldn't appreciate. But that 
I feel that in it um, personally. And there's a, a point of view that I didn't even imagine that the blue dragonfly was a hair clip. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it's also the wish for her father to win and her wish for her father not to be depressed and disappointed and the wish that all our wishes come true. Yes, and, you know, getting away from drinking and brooding and angry introspection and remembering the awful desert war. But she's brought so many layers into her story. Yes, uh, You know, yes. of the relationship and who her father was and what her life was like and what their life was like. Yes, and she's cleverly avoided, although she keeps skirting around the idea of wishing on a star because there she showers his um, ticket with diamonds, not with stars or stardust. Or, and yet we know that that is also, um, you know, when you uh, wish upon a star, you may look up into the sky and think about crossing a rainbow and all those sorts of things, which goes with the blue dragonfly. So I think she's subtly drawing all these things together without actually saying them. Yeah, it, it's a it's a great piece. Um, and what do you know anything about it? Where else one can find her work? Is there? Does she have? A oh, she's book been or? really, really widely published, but I'm okay. not sure if she has a book. Okay. Um, I've only seen her work online. All right. Um, is it easy to publish Highborn? Yes and no. <laughs> Writers of haiku and its associated forms tend to live in a separate publishing world to that of other poets, but many of the publications that take haiku now take Highborn as well. For people interested in getting Highborn published, Failed Haiku, an often enormous online journal, are publishing all things haiku-related every month, and Drifting Sands, an online Highborn publication published every second month, are good places to start. Drifting Sands began in 2019, and it's edited by guest editors, sometimes but not always, to theme. Most of the time, um, when I've had work published there, I've also had interesting exchanges with the editors as well. They see it as their role to encourage poets who are new to the form and they'll suggest changes if they feel something is not quite there. So um, uh, we've had a look at... Um quite a, a, a few uh, haibun. Um, is there any limit to what people can write about in haibun? Uh, I don't think so. And there's not even a limit um, to prose and haiku, although that's by far the main uh, kind of haibun that exists. But I have seen haibun that are poetry and haiku, and I've seen haibun that are prose, poetry and haiku. And so formally and um, in terms of content, I don't think there are really any limitations. Um, and uh, so Drifting Sands and Failed Haiku are not hard copy publications. No, they're, they're not. Yeah, they're online publications. Yeah, yeah. 
but um, as far as hard copy publications are concerned, let me see, um, Modern Haiku, I've had one Haibun published there, um, uh, Frog Pond, they're both in America, um, Presence um, in the UK, um, um, they also take Haibun. I think it's actually relatively easy to find out if you just do a search. And um, Drifting Sands, as um, I think I might have already mentioned, um, has a, a little section where there are links to other publications where you can read essays about Haibun and also uh, see other places where Haibun have been published. So there's a huge amount of reading to do online for free if anybody's interested in in exploring this for themselves, either as a reader or as somebody who'd like to write some. I think it's a, a very – it feels like an accessible form in a way because you're starting with the the prose component and that, that you know, there's a sort of an easy way in with that and then – Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And as I said, it, the the – Prose can be as short as a single sentence, mm-hmm. um, and probably, I mean, you wouldn't want to write two pages of prose with one haiku. But um, it, one of the things about haibun is, on the whole, it tends to be relatively short. Sure. Now, what's the hardest thing about writing haibun? Uh, deciding what should be prose and what should be haiku, and how to relate them to one another and where to place the haiku and uh, how to get a good title. I think Marietta did a lovely job in There But For Fortune um, with her choice of of title. Um, but I think uh, there are some people who, like John Ashbury, just called his Haibun Haibun, um, who don't put a lot of effort into the title, but others who really do. And it really is almost like the title is another line of yet another different poem. So, um, Alice, I'm wondering if you might like to share another one of your own Haibun with us. Okay, thanks. Um, I'll read you On the Horizon. It's about... um, Two pieces of art. One is uh, an art installation, which is in Cranbourne, and the other is um, a piece of Zen garden. I suppose some people might object to that being called art in Kyoto. On the horizon. Anderson Hunt's Iron Landscape. Public art installation, 2009, Cranbourne. A uniform blue scorcher of a day. Three artificial trees emerge from a platform of red scoria. Life-sized, leafless, recalling ring-barked river red gums. Each has a trunk of rusted iron with attached silvery patches, two branches and a few terminal twigs. Below the platform, at ground level, a beach of sand, eight scattered rocks, also made of iron, 
represent the major fragments of the Cranbourne meteorite, a fiery sky visitor. Roanji, Contented Dragon Temple, late 15th century Kyoto, a dry rock garden, 15 stones stand in raked ripples of white gravel, 14 peaks emerge from mist or foam, from every observation point a 15th disappears. Bushfire cleanup. Skulls at the waterhole. Bushfire cleanup. Skulls at the waterhole. Thank you. Very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just let the listener think about that rather than trying to unpack it. So, um, I've been talking to Alice Wanderer about Haibun. Thank you so much, Alice, for coming in. Thanks very much, Di. Thank you. Um, so my name is Di Cousins and this has been the Spoken Word Programme.